Amen. That was great. As Pastor Swan often says, we could just go home right after that. Amen. Well, let's open up our Bibles to Philippians chapter 4. Today, as we reach the conclusion of the series that I have been going through called Walking in the Peace of God, as today we'll be looking at what the Lord says about the influences in our lives and his commands over our thought life. Philippians chapter 4, this is part 4 of Walking in the Peace of God. We're going to read verses 8 and 9. And the word of the Lord says, Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is anything, excuse me, and if there is any excellence, and if anything worthy of praise, Dwell on these things, the things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me. Practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Will you pray with me? Father God, I pray as I attempt to preach your word, Lord, that the words of which I speak would be what you have spoken, and no more, no less. Father, I pray that you would bring the word of God to bear upon our souls and conform us to the image of Christ for the glory of God alone, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The most influential people in your life are those who you surround yourself with the most. Good or bad, you will become like those whom you spend the most of your time with. J.C. Ryle once said, quote, Nothing perhaps affects man's character more than the company he keeps. We catch the ways and the tone of those we live and talk with and unhappily get harm far more easily than good. Disease, he says, is infectious, but health is not, end quote. I like how he says disease is infectious, but health is not. Unhealthy relationships can be poison to your walk with God. And Paul has this idea here in verses 9, where he says, The things you have learned, received, heard, and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Wait, what, Paul? Practice these things. He's saying, you see, you, the things you've seen in me, the things you've heard in me, the things that I've taught and led by example, do these things, and the God of peace will be with you. How many of us can actually say that to somebody? Hey, do what I do. Do what I teach, and you'll have the peace of God. Crickets, right? How could Paul say that? Paul understood the power of influences, godly influences in our lives. And Paul could accurately say these things, not because he thought he was so good, but he realized and saw the great sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit in his life. He said the same thing back in chapter 3, verse 17, where he says, Join in following my example and observe those. And that word in the Greek literally means to intently look and mark out those people who walk according to the pattern you have with us, or in us, he says. Paul understood the power of influences in your life. 1 Corinthians fifteen thirty-three, he says, do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts what? Good morals. You know, it's interesting in the context of that passage, Paul is actually refuting and correcting the doctrine of the resurrection. It's a doctrinal statement. Bad company not only corrupts, uh, or bad company not only corrupts good morals in an um, external sense, but it also corrupts good morals in a doctrinal sense. That's what he was referring to. You hang out around enough people who have bad doctrine, and you're slowly going to become like them and have bad doctrine. 1 Corinthians 4, 16. Therefore I exhort you, Paul says, be imitators of me. 1 Corinthians 11, 1. Be imitators of me, just as I also am of Christ. To the church of Thessalonica, in his first epistle, and one chapter, or chapter 1, verse 6, he says, You also became imitators of us 
That's Paul and his companions, Timothy and the apostles in general. You became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit. See, friends, Paul knew that his disciples, his pupils, needed to follow examples of those whom the Spirit of God has and is doing a mighty work of sanctification. And again, Paul's not boasting here, but he could recognize what God had done in his life, and he knew the need that we have as we're seeking to follow Christ, as we're seeking to be conformed to his image in every area of our life. Paul understood the need for us to also find those around us in our lives who are also doing the same thing, who have one intent, one purpose, and that's becoming Christ-like in every area, in our word, thought, deed, and action, and following them as they, in so much as they, follow Christ. Now, we're not saying to blindly follow somebody because they seem to have it all together, or to trust a man or a woman just because they seem to be godly. We ought to be noble Bereans, as it is in the book of Acts, right? And we ought to only follow those as they follow Christ. Amen? With that being said, as influential as those around you are, I can tell each of you right now who the most influential person in your life is. This is the person who will be the rise and fall of your Christian walk. This is the person who will be most likely to lead you into sin. This is the person in your life who will most likely lead you to repentance. This will be the person in your life that will be most likely to lead you and to keep you on the path of righteousness. And that person, brothers and sisters, is you. That person is you. You are the most influential person in your life. And Paul addresses that here in our text, where he addresses right thinking, having the right thinking, which leads to right living. Now, it's important that when you look at a text to always understand what is the context of this text. What's the immediate context that the author's writing about, to whom they're writing? What's the greater context? What's the theme of the entire book? Or epistle? What is the context, uh, what is the biblical context of the passage? What's the historical context of the passage? So since we've been in Philippians here, I've been in Philippians for over a year, and you're getting half of Philippians and then half uh, Thessalonians, and then, and, and then we get some revelation from Pastor Spears. And so I want to just briefly remind you the book of Philippians uh, is written to the church of Philippi. And although we see a lot of under themes of underlying themes of joy, which is permeated throughout the book, and it, Philippians is generally known as the epistle of joy, the overarching theme that I've seen in the book of Philippians is unity for the sake of the gospel. Unity for the sake of the gospel. More specific, to advance the gospel. You see over and over Paul addressing the gospel advancing and also addressing the Philippians to grow in their unity. The theme of the whole book, you can see it in chapter 1, verse 27. He says, Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Paul wanted them to be unified, to be one spirit, one mind. And then he addresses it again more specifically in chapter 2, verse 2. Paul says, make my joy complete. Well, how do we do that? How can we make your joy complete, Paul? He says, being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit. See the unification. He wants them to be unified and intent on one purpose, he says. Then in chapter 3, Paul then warns the Philippians about the impending false teachers that would come with their false doctrines. He calls them dogs. This would threaten the unity 
of the church. Paul also gives them examples with Timothy and, and commending Epaphroditus to them as examples of, for them to grow in unity in the local church. And then in chapter 4, Paul gets more specific, where he calls out two church members by name who were in the middle of a conflict and they were not walking in unity. They were not walking in harmony. That leads us to our passage here today and the whole series that I've been teaching on walking in the peace of God, starting in verse 4 down through verse 9, where Paul gives these very practical commands as a way in which we can walk in the very peace of God in the midst of chaos. In the midst of chaos. See, believe it or not, friends, the stuff that's happening out in our world today, it's nothing new. You know, Solomon said there's nothing new under the sun. Uh, so the things that we're seeing, although they may be different, it, the, the underlying theme is not new. There have been pressures like this, wars like this, uh, pandemics a lot worse, as Pastor Swan mentioned last week. And in the church of Philippi, they had very similar pressures going on in their church. They had external pressures. They were a church uh, surrounded by a pagan nation, a God-hating nation. So they had that pressure of a pagan nation upon the church. Don't we have that today? They had the pressure of wars. There were wars constantly going on there in the east, in the Middle East. So they had these external pressures, but also they had internal pressures. Uh, as a general Christian, we always have internal pressures. But as a church, they had internal pressures with their own church as they struggled with growing in unity. They struggled with conflict. They, they had all of these things that would cause them to lose their peace. And so here Paul gives us practical ways in which we can walk in the peace of God. And walking in the peace of God in the middle of all of the chaos, friends, will incubate our local church to grow in unity, to grow in love for one another, to grow in the same, having the same mind for one another, having the same, um, the same practices and the same um, standing firm in one spirit, having one spirit and one mind, as he says in chapter 1, being united. <clears throat> and to walk in peace, to walk in the peace of God starts with your thinking. So if you look back again at verse 9, Paul says, Practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Well, what things? He says, The things you've seen, heard, and received in me. Practice these things. What things, Paul? Well, look at the immediate context, which would be the preceding verse, verse 8. We're going to look at these are the things that Paul is saying to dwell on, to meditate upon, to be thinking about constantly. Uh, but also there's a greater context. I believe he's reaching back to verse 4. These are the things to rejoice in the Lord. And again, I say rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be made known to all men, to walk in a spirit of gentleness. Verse 6, stop worrying. He's saying, practice these things. Not only am I teaching these things, you actually see them in me. Stop worrying, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving in our hearts, make your requests be made known to God. Paul's saying, practice these things. Do these things by the Spirit of God, by God's grace, and the Spirit and the, and the God of peace will be with you. Here in verse 8 and 9, Paul's reaching the climax of his thought on how to walk in the peace of God. And ultimately, it's becoming like Christ, as Paul said in the previous chapter, in chapter 3, where he said, This one thing I do, he said, forgetting what lies behind, reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of Jesus Christ. Paul is seeking to press forward to become more like Christ in his life, to become more like Christ in our thoughts, in his actions. And that all starts, friends, in your mind. 
It all starts in your mind. You know, your thoughts are very important to God. Your thought life is very important to God. We must be active, brothers and sisters. We must be active in training our mind how to think. We cannot sit back. We can't be neutral. We cannot be lazy. Because Jeremiah 17, 9 says what? Our hearts are deceitfully wicked above all else. If we're not active in training our mind how to think, how God tells us to think, our sinful heart will be happy to occupy our mind with ungodly thoughts, with thoughts that don't line up with the Word of God. Romans 12, verse 2, Paul says it this way, And do not be conformed to this world. There's a lot out in the world that's putting pressure on Christians to conform to the world, is it not? He says, do not be conformed to the world. Do you want to be conformed to the world? I know I don't. How do we do that? He says, but be transformed by the renewing of your what? Of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. All the pressure, all the cards are stacked up against you and I, friends. Outside worldly forces must not be taken lightly. We cannot take these things lightly. We must be active in pursuing godly thinking. Paul said it like this in Ephesians 4, starting at verse 22. He says that in reference to your formal manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind, he says. You be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Proverbs 23, 7, For as, he, uh, or as a man thinks within himself, so he is. Proverbs 4, 23, Watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. We have to be diligent. We have to be watchful over our thoughts, over our hearts, over our feelings. See, our mind leads to thoughts. We have thoughts in our minds. Those thoughts is what leads to emotions, either positive or negative. Those emotions are what leads us to making choices, good or bad. So you see, it all rooted in your mind. And for, uh, Proverbs 4.23, as I read, it says, Watch over your heart with all diligence, for from your heart flows the springs of life. Your life is a direct result of what you are thinking about. Which is why the title of my message is Think About What You Are Thinking About. Think about what you are thinking about. Many people don't stop and take inventory of what they're thinking about. But as I said, the outworking of your life is a direct result of your day-to-day thinking. Now, God is sovereign. God orders our steps. As the proverb says, that man plans his way, but the Lord orders his steps. So God is, obvi- God is absolute sovereign and orders our steps, but we are also responsible. And just as in the book of Galatians says, whatever man sows, he will reap. Okay, so whatever you're sowing inside of your mind, God and his providence will allow you to reap those things which goes on in your mind. Let me ask you this. If, if somebody could transcribe your thoughts in this past week, write all your thoughts down, word for word, what would that look like? If someone could transcribe your thoughts and post them up here on the wall, what would that look like? For many, that's a pretty scary thing to think about because oftentimes our thoughts go haywire, do they not? And we're going to talk about that a little in a little bit and how to deal with that. Because oftentimes things can pop into our heads like, where did that come from, right? It's what you do with that thought is what honors God or displeases God. 
if you struggle with walking in the peace of God, this peace of God which is offered only to believers through the redemption in Christ Jesus, if you struggle with walking in peace amidst the chaos, think about what you are thinking about. Here in our text, Paul gives us eight ways, eight ways in which we ought to shape our thought life. And by God's grace and the power of the Holy Spirit, you can align your thinking to how God prescribes how we should align our thinking in the Word of God. So let's look at verse 8. He says, finally, brethren. It's important to know when Paul says, finally, brethren, there's two things that you need to know about that. First, when he says, finally, that word means the rest of the story or what remains. Paul's transitioning to the conclusion of his epistle. And then he says, brethren. Okay, this word in the New Testament is a word that's reserved for believers. Paul is exhorting all of the believers at the church of Philippi to think upon these things. And by implication, the Holy Spirit is speaking to all believers everywhere in all time that this is your duty before God to think on these things. Now, if you look at the end of verse 8, as I just mentioned, think on these things, or the NASB says, dwell on these things. It's important to define that first. That will help us unpack the rest of the verse. That word dwell is a verb, logizomai. It means to meditate upon, to consider, or take account of. And it has the idea of having objective truth tied with it. That word, what I mean by that, logizomai, when somebody's meditating upon something, considering something, there's a presupposition or it's assumed that they're thinking about objective truth. Okay? It's very important. Also about, important about this word, uh, it's in the imperative tense, meaning it's a command. It's not an option. It's not a suggestion. Paul's not saying, the Holy Spirit's not saying, hey, it'd be a good idea to consider thinking about these things every now and again. No, it is an absolute command that God is giving us to think about these things. It's also important to know it's in the active voice in the Greek. Active voice, meaning it's an ongoing thing. It's not a past tense. It's not if you ever can do it in the future. It's in the active tense, meaning Paul is saying, always be thinking about these things ongoing, day to day, in the present tense. Does that make sense? In the active voice. Now let's look at these things that he says to dwell upon, to meditate upon, to give an account, to consider. He says, whatever is true. And notice in your text, whatever is repeated. And that's there in the Greek as well. It's anything. It's whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right. Constantly, Paul is repeating whatever, 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 okay? And we're going to get to what actually is true, okay? What is lovely? What is honorable, all right? First, whatever is true. Now, all of these are adjectives. True here is an adjective in the Greek, and it comes from the noun form of the word truth in the Greek, aletheia. And this is sort of the overarching uh, adjective for the rest of Uh, what Paul gives here in verse 8. So there's eight things. Whatever is true, truth, that's sort of the overarching idea. And the idea here is to dwell or think upon the transcendent truths of God revealed in Scripture. He's not saying whatever you do, think about things that are of, like, true things, right? There are a lot of things that are true out there, hard to find in today's world, right? Right? Uh, There are a lot of true things going on in the world that are really horrible things, but they're true. Is Paul saying to dwell upon all these horrible things that are true? No. The idea that Paul is giving here is that we dwell and we meditate upon the transcendent truths of God. Now, it also doesn't mean that we ignore true things that are happening, things that should cause us concern. You know, there's some circles within Christianity where the idea is ignorance is bliss. 
and I'm not going to worry about anything because I'm not even going to uh, know about anything. I, I don't want to hear about all that negative stuff. I'm going to be positive because I love Jesus and Jesus is positive. So I don't want to know about that horrible stuff out there, bad stuff in here, bad stuff in the family. No, just sweep it under the rug. I'm going to be happy in Jesus. That's not what Paul is talking about here. So what Paul is talking about, even in dire situations, even in tragic situations, even in turmoil that's going on in our world, that's going on in our city, our state, observing those, acknowledging them. But when he says to dwell on whatever is true, then we need to train our minds to think about the transcendent truths of God to speak to that situation. Does that make sense? We're not ignoring the situations, but we're reminding ourselves of the truths of God that would apply to the situations in our life. So we shouldn't be dwelling on situations that would cause us to fear or to worry, but acknowledge the situation and then dwell and meditate upon the truths that God says in his word to help us glorify him in that situation. Next, he says, whatever is honorable, whatever is honorable. This word means noble or worthy of respect or something that's venerable. It's a qualification that God lays down through Paul for deacons in 1 Timothy 3.8. He says, deacons likewise must be men of dignity, dignified, honorable, Someone who's worthy of, of, of respect. And again, in Titus 2, 2, he says older men are to be temperate, dignified. And back to 1 Timothy 3, 8, he actually gives the same <clears throat> qualification for the women. Women must likewise be dignified. So this is a qualification for deacons, for the women, for older men. It's a qualification for Christians. (laughs) That we ought to be people, men and women of God, who are worthy of respect, not because we're so great, but because God has transformed us through the Spirit of God. Uh, That we ought to be dignified, we ought to be honorable, and that's the word that Paul says here, that we ought to dwell on whatever is honorable. We ought to dwell on whatever is worthy of respect whatever is worthy of respect. 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter, you know, it says love bears all things, love believes all things, love thinketh no evil. What is Paul saying there? Uh, if you're not in love, if you're walking in a mind that's full of uh, evil, you're always thinking evil about other people. And in Proverbs, it says a suspicious man is evil... <laughs> An evil man is suspicious about everything. So if you go around and you're always thinking evil thoughts about people, not even evil in your definition, but critical thoughts, you're always always suspicious about somebody for no reason. Now that's not to say we don't have discernment. We ought to have discernment, absolutely, that's not what I'm saying. But someone who's always thinking evil and suspicious about what somebody's doing or why they're doing it, That's not what Paul is saying here. Have discernment. Yes. Jesus even said, do not cast your pearls before swine. That takes discernment, does it not? But we shouldn't have such a critical spirit and such a suspicious spirit where we're filling our minds with suspicion about anything and everything. So there's a balance. We must have discernment, but we must also dwell upon things that are worthy of respect that are honorable, that are noble, that are honest. Next, Paul says, whatever is right, whatever is right. That word in the Greek is dakaios, which is the word that's used for the righteousness of God. In Romans 4, where Paul quotes Genesis and says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. The same word, just the noun form, here we have the adjective, for right or just, equitable is another way to say that. Or even it can mean innocent 
or holy, uh, just as I mentioned. And there's an absoluteness wrapped up in this text. That whatever you think about that's right, it's absolutely right because God says it's right. It's absolutely just because it aligns with the word of God. Next, he says, whatever is pure, whatever is pure. Now, this is where I believe many Christians fail in their way of thinking, both men and women. The idea when he says whatever is pure, this is the idea that whatever is clean, whatever is modest, whatever is free from stain, it actually has the idea of being sexually clean, sexually pure. And he is saying that your mind, that you should dwell and meditate upon that which is pure. There's no room in the Christian mind for uh, inappropriate thinking or even jesting or, 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 or uh, insinuating something inappropriate. Our mind should be free from stain. We should think pure thoughts. Now, like I said, men and women can struggle with this. But again, if this is you, if you struggle with having pure thoughts in your mind, we need to go to the Word of God and with the help of the Holy Spirit, replace those impure thoughts with pure thoughts. Okay? You remember when Jesus said, if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Well, if you struggle with having pure thoughts, what can you do in your life to cut out the things that are causing you to have impure thoughts? I remember hearing one time that a man, he struggled with having impure thoughts with a billboard on the way to work. He constantly see this billboard when he'd go to work. And so it was told him, well, take another route. Go a different way. It's causing you to stumble. It's causing you to think impure thoughts. And here Paul says that we should dwell and meditate upon that which is pure, that which is good, that which is holy, that which is clean. We must be active, friends. There's so much garbage in the world that's coming, that's impressing upon your eyes, that's pressing upon your ears. There's so much out there that if you're not active, you will fall to impure thoughts. And we must never think that we are so great in and of ourselves that we won't fall into some sort of uh, egregious, impure sin. Okay, it happens to the best. Paul said, be careful, those of you who stand, lest you fall. As soon as you come to the place where you think, no, I, I can't fall into that sin. That's where the enemy wants to get you so that you can let your guard down. We must be active in our thought life, brothers and sisters. We must be active. Next, he says, whatever is lovely. This is an interesting word. It's used only once in the New Testament, and it's a compound word. You got two words here. You got pros and you got phileo. Phileo probably sounds familiar to you if you study the Bible. It's a word for love. Uh, a pros just literally means going towards, moving towards. So he says, whatever is lovely. The idea here means pleasing or something that's promoting love. We ought to think about lovely things, acceptable things. Do you think about lovely things? You know, I mentioned it just a few minutes ago. Love thinketh no evil. Do you think good things about others? Or do you have a critical spirit about other people? Are your, are your thoughts always thinking the best of others? You know, people are going to let us down. People are going to do things that are going to hurt us. People are going to do things that just don't make sense to us. But do we believe the best about that person regardless? Not to discount, again, discernment. We must have discernment. But, friends, we, all, we always should think the best, especially about our brothers and sisters in Christ. We ought to believe and think the best about them because that's what the Word of God says we must do. So are your thoughts lovely? Do you dwell upon the things that are lovely? Uh, next, Paul says, whatever is of a good repute, he says, a good repute. This word in the Greek is euphemos. 
Sound familiar? Euphemism. It's actually where we got the English word for euphemism. Euphemos. Now, what's a euphemism? Well, a euphemism is substituting a good expression for an offensive one. Okay? Now, that's not what the Greek word means, but it is a good expression that you're sort of trying to mask an offensive expression by saying something that is less offensive that sounds good, right? Well, the word for good repute literally means a good word, a good story, a good report. So Paul is saying whatever is of a good report, we should think upon these things. Then he says, if anything's worthy of praise, anything's worthy of praise. This is the eighth and the last thing that Paul gives here. And this is a very straightforward word. It literally means praiseworthy. Whatever is praiseworthy, dwell or meditate upon these things. After I preached this message this morning, uh, a a guy, a, a gentleman down there, Bobby McDonald, who I really have come to love, uh, he comes to me and he reminded me of a, of a saying I've never heard before, uh, but the saying, and I won't get it exactly right, I won't do it justice, but uh, when we're thinking about thinking about things that are praiseworthy, thinking about uh, the best of a situation, and not, only, not always dwelling upon uh, what you don't have or the negatives. And he said, I once met a man who complained about having no shoes. And he complained about having no shoes until he met the man who had no feet. You've probably heard it. He said it better than I did. Uh, But we should be thinking and dwelling upon the things that are praiseworthy. Let me tell you, and and he reminded me of this morning, Mr. McDonald. He said, you know, I sat in my bedroom. He's he's done missionary work in Russia, okay? Uh, He sat in his bedroom the other night and listened to the silence. And he was reminded that he didn't hear any bombs in the background going off. He didn't hear any missiles going off. And he sat and was, and just tears of joy was thankful. And so whatever is going on in your life right now, whatever struggle you're, you're having, is there anything that you can think about that's praiseworthy? Is there anything in the situation? What about that God says that he works all things for good, even the bad things? They're bad, but he works all things for good. What about that God rescued you from your sin? And transferred you from the kingdom of darkness. And took you from the kingdom of darkness. And transferred you to the kingdom of his beloved son. As Paul says in Colossians. Is that praiseworthy? Can we think upon those things? I think we can. Paul gives these eight things. Again, it's an imperative. It's a command to dwell upon these things. Consider these things, brothers and sisters. Meditate upon these things. Now, how does this work? work in our lives? What's the outworking of this? You may think, how can I do this in my day-to-day? What's the practical side of this? I'm going to give you three things that'll help us to be able to think these thoughts in accordance with the Word of God. Number one is that we have to be active and take inventory of our thoughts day by day, hour by hour, even minute by minute, friends. Again, we have to think about what we are thinking about. Now, your mind, it's made of flesh, right? So in a sense, you're struggling with a fleshly thing, but the battle is a spiritual battle. So although this is a mind or a flesh-type issue, it's a spiritual battle. So if it's a spiritual battle, friends, that means it's only going to be conquered by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's it. And it's only reserved for the believers who are in Christ. Paul says this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, starting at verse 3. He says, For though we walk in the flesh, although we walk around with a flesh mind, right? Though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. Verse 5. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. And here it is, listen, 
and we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Take inventory. Are your thoughts lining up with the word of God? Do you need to pull them down and take them captive to the obedience of Christ? We must take inventory of our thoughts. Are they true? Are they honorable? Is what you're thinking and what you've thought this past week, are they just? Are they right? Is it pure? Is it undefiled? Is it lovely? Is it of a good report, repute? Is it of moral excellence? Is it worthy of praise? Are you thinking thoughts that are praiseworthy? So we must take inventory of our thoughts. Number two, we must be proactive in talking to ourselves. Now you might chuckle a little bit. Mark, you're telling us to, to talk to ourselves? Yes, I am. Talk to yourself. We must be proactive in talking with ourselves, but in a way that is truthful and God-honoring. We must be proactive. King David understood this example. We have plenty of examples throughout Scripture. I'm going to look at two of them. With how we should speak truth to ourselves. You know, we're all talking to ourselves all the time, are we not? You make a mistake at work, and what do you say? You usually call yourself a bad name or say you always do that wrong, right? Something like that. We're always talking to ourselves, okay? But we must learn to speak to ourselves in such a way that matches what's described in our text in Philippians 4.8. Look at Psalm 103 with me. Psalm 103. Here we have King David. We know his story, right? Oftentimes, David had nobody to talk to because he was hiding in a cave. The only person to talk to, that he could talk to, was himself. But look what he says in just the few, for, uh, first few verses of, of Psalm 103. David says to himself, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. David's talking to himself. He's telling himself to bless the Lord no matter the situation. And then he says again, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget none of his benefits. He's reminding himself about the truths of God. What are these benefits? Look at verse 3. Who pardons all of your iniquities. Who heals all of your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with loving kindness and compassion, who satisfies your years with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagle. Do you see what David's doing here? He's reminding about all the praiseworthy things, all the lovely things, all the honorable things, all of the excellent things, all of the things that are of good repute. He's doing what Paul is commanding us to do in 4.8, in Philippians 4.8. And he's reminding himself of all of the wonderful benefits that God has bestowed upon him. He's talking to himself in such a way that lines up with the word of God. We must learn to talk to ourselves in a God-honoring way. Now, I don't want to be confused, and I don't want you to be confused with a lot of the self-help stuff out there with positive affirmations where you look in the mirror and you tell yourself how great you are. Okay? That's not what we're talking about here. This is not the self-esteem-boosting, psychological, just positive thinking. That's not what we're talking about. And again, we see this, don't we, in some Christianity where we bury our heads in the sand and and don't want to hear anything negative. I only want to think positive thoughts. Don't tell me all about that bad stuff. I just want to I want to think positive. That's not what we're think that's not what we're talking about here. That's self-help jargon nonsense only boosts your pride. That's all it does. And we see it. Haven't you ever heard of some of that garbage? Right? Just tell yourself how great you are. 
We see it if you've ever been in the sales business. It's permeated all of the sales business, right? Just repeat the affirmations that, you know, you are a great salesperson. You are, uh, you are an influencer. You, are, uh, you can close the deal. All this stuff that I've heard years ago in my old sales professions, it's all garbage. It's all garbage, okay? That's not what we're talking about here. We ought to have a sober assessment of who we are. And the more that we talk to ourselves in a God-honoring way, the more that we grow in knowing how great and how wonderful God is and how sinful we are apart from the grace of God. Paul says it in Romans 12, 3, towards the middle of the verse. He says, Not to think that each one among you should not think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment. We ought to not think of ourselves more highly than we ought to think, but have sound judgment. So we ought to recognize the reality of the situation, but then speak to ourselves as David did with the truth. Uh, We ought to speak truth regarding that reality. One more example in Psalm 42. Psalm 42, verse 5. The psalmist, talking to himself, says, Why are you in despair, O my soul? Your version might say, Why are you cast down, O my soul? The psalmist is asking himself, Why are you so down? Why do you walk in sadness? Why are you in such despondency? I'm reminded of the story of, of Katerina Luther when she dressed in all black. You remember the story? She was dressed in all black. And Martin Luther comes in and says, why are you dressed in all black? Who's died? And she says, God. God's dead. And Luther basically says, you are speaking blasphemy. Why would you say such a thing? And Miss Luther says, well, by the way you're acting... You're acting like God's dead. And that convicted him. Why are you cast down, O my soul, the psalmist says? Why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God, he says to himself. You see how this psalmist is talking to himself, reasoning from the scriptures with himself. So if you're not walking in the peace of God, if you have a cast-down spirit, you're, you're in despondency. It would do you good to be like this psalmist here and, and speak truth to yourself. Why are you cast down? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him for the help of his presence. We have to remind ourselves about the truths of God. Why are you cast down, O oh my soul? Don't you know that God has saved you? Don't you know that God has passed you from death's grip? Don't you know that God will never leave you or forsake you? Why are you cast down, O my soul? Don't you know that God has ordered your life and God will take care of those whom he's called? Don't you know that God will keep you to the end? Don't you know, O my soul, that God will keep you and make you stand in the presence of him on that day of judgment and that you will enter into the courts of heaven and that you will be told, well done, good and thankful servant, good and faithful servant. O my soul, why are you so cast down? Why do you live so much in fear, O my soul, where God has overcome the world through Jesus Christ? That's how we ought to be speaking to ourselves. Friends, speaking the truth of God, when God's word is spoken, it is God speaking. So when we speak the word of God to ourselves, we're allowing the Holy Spirit and the word of God to speak to our hearts. We have to be active because we will end up speaking lies to ourselves. We will end up speaking lies to ourselves. Number three, we must set our minds on Christ himself. We must set our minds on Christ himself. You may think, well, that's obvious, Mark. We should always set our minds on Christ. But if you think about this verse here in verse 8, there are eight things. How can we go about the day? 
and check the box. Was that thought good? Okay, check. Was that thought lovely? Check. Was that thought this? Check. Like, we can't possibly do that, right? We ought to memorize this and internalize this verse and, and meditate upon this verse. But friends, if we take all of these adjectives together and put them all together, who or what epitomizes the totality of this text? Who is true? Who is honorable? Who is right and pure? Who is lovely? Who is perfectly excellent? Who alone is worthy of praise? Is it not Jesus Christ? Is it not the Savior who's redeemed you? Christ is truth. Christ is honorable and right. Christ is pure and lovely. So we ought to set ourselves, our minds on the things above. We ought to set ourselves on Christ. We ought to seek to have the mind of Christ. As it said elsewhere, Paul says, So as you've received Christ, so walk in him. Have the mind of Christ, he says in Philippians chapter 2. We ought to set our minds upon Christ and how lovely and how true and how honorable and how amazing he is. And God, by the power of his Holy Spirit, will slowly transform your mind. He will renew your mind by the word of God and the power of God. Of the Holy Spirit. In conclusion, first, if you are outside of Christ, you can forget about reforming your thoughts to please God. Because the Bible says that your mind is actually hostile to God if you're outside of Christ. Colossians 1.21. It says you're hostile in mind outside of Christ. Romans 8, 7 says, The mind set on the flesh is hostile to God. Now in the context, Paul is talking about those who are not saved are of the flesh. So those who are of the flesh, those who are not saved, it says the mind is hostile towards God. For it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. I read it earlier, Jeremiah 79, the heart is more deceitfully wicked above all else. Who can understand it? So if you're outside of Christ, you can never get your thought life right because your thought life is in sin. Your thought life loves sin. You're a slave to sin and your mind is hostile to God. You will never get your thinking right. But if you've been redeemed, You know you've been born again. You know that God has called you out of darkness into his wonderful, marvelous life. You're a new creation in Christ. If that's you today and you struggle with the things that go on in your mind, you struggle with having thoughts that are the total opposite of what we read today in the Word of God. If that's you, be encouraged because by the power of the Holy Spirit and by God's grace, He can change your mind. He can change your mind and he can change your thought life. He can conform your thought life to the image of God for the glory of God alone. Romans 8, as Paul is talking about those who are unsaved in the flesh or those who are saved that are in the spirit, he says this in verse 13, for if you are living according to the flesh, You must die. Now that's the one that's not saved. Those who are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God are the sons of God. So if this word is bearing witness to your spirit, and you have the desire to be like Christ. You have the desire to make every thought pleasing to God, to be like the psalmist, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing to you, O God. If you have that desire, be encouraged, friends. Be encouraged because God, by the power of the Spirit, will help you and will conform you to 
his image. Notice it says, if by the Spirit you're putting to death the deeds of the flesh. Your mind, flesh, but it's a spiritual battle. It's a spiritual work. But it takes, it takes effort. It takes a lot of effort. It takes repentance. If there are thoughts that you entertain in your life, not just popping in your head, we get thoughts that popped into your head, and we should cast those down immediately. But if you have thoughts that come into your head that are ungodly thoughts, and you entertain those thoughts, and you allow those thoughts to fester in your mind, friends, that, you need to repent of that. You know, I liken to, as males, we're, such, we're so fixated on, on physically our sight that oftentimes a, a picture might flash in our mind or, or even a thought might flash in our mind that we know is not godly. And we ought to cast those down. And if we don't, then that leads to more. And that leads to this growing manifestation of impure thoughts. And we must repent of that. But it can happen in any area of our life. It can happen with pride. It can happen with greed. We get a thought of greed and we allow it to fester and we we keep it going. It can be an evil thought against another person, a suspicious thought. It just grows and grows. Maybe somebody said something to you and you think, wait, did they really, did they mean that? And it offends you. And then you keep thinking about that and you keep having suspicion about that person about, well, they must have said that because of this. And it's all these negative thoughts about another person that needs to be stopped, my friends. You need to cast that down that imagination. And you need to dwell upon things that are pure, right, and holy. And you can do it only through Christ and for the glory of God alone. So I encourage you, wherever you are in your walk, the Greek word for repentance is a change of mind. Repentance starts in your mind. Turn from those thoughts that, if they're convicting to you, if the shoe fits, wear it. Turn from those thoughts that you've entertained. See, oftentimes, and I'll end with this, oftentimes, because nobody else can hear and see our thoughts, we want to hide them, even from God. We want to pretend like we didn't have those and and not bring them to God and confess them. God already knows them. You can't hide them. You're doing worse for yourself by trying to hide them. But God doesn't want you to hide them. God, if you're a son of God, God wants you to bring them to to him and be open and confess, Lord, I have been thinking these awful thoughts. I confess, I can't stop. Have you ever been there before? I know I have. God wants you to be open and honest in your repentance. God, I can't stop thinking these evil thoughts about this person. Help me. Forgive me. And seek him every day to conform your thought life to the image of Christ. And friends, he's going to do it slowly, but surely he'll do it. And then you can give God the glory. You can give God the honor. And you can help your brother and sister and say, look, I've been there. And give all the glory to God. Look what God's done in my life. Then you can say, as Paul said, follow me. Follow my thought life as I follow Christ. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. Oh, God, thank you for not leaving us in our own thoughts and imaginations. God, thank you for not leaving me in my own thoughts and imaginations. Lord, I know exactly where I would be if you had left me in my own way of thinking. God, even as a believer, where I've gone in my thought life, Father. Thank you for not leaving me there, God, but bringing me and conforming me to the image of your Son. Thank you for the continual growth in our lives as Christians. And God, I pray that you would first and foremost, God, if anyone is listening that is not in Christ, maybe they've had a false conversion. Maybe they, in their own thinking, have thought that they are saved because they prayed this prayer or got baptized or did this thing. God, I pray that you would draw them by the power of your Holy Spirit. And God, those listening that are in Christ, 
that are like me that struggle often with thinking the right things about people and having uh, thoughts that are honoring to you and, and struggle with meditating upon all these things that we ought to meditate upon. How easy it is, God, to allow our thoughts to be negative about situations, to be fearful about circumstances. Father, for those listening that are believers that struggle as I do, I pray, God, that you would help us be active to think about what we're thinking about, to cast down those imaginations that conflict, that are against the word of God. Help us to replace those thoughts with thoughts that are lovely and pure and right and honorable and praiseworthy and just. Help us, God, by the power of your Holy Spirit, for the glory of God alone we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.